everybody. It is episode 84 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you with Steve from Austin, Texas. Hey, Steve. Hello, Chris, and hello, podcast world. Excited about this one. This is going to be fun. Yeah, we've got a couple of fun things happening. First on our main topic, we've got Bowerman Bay Mario Hall joining us, teammates Colleen Quigley, who we had on episode 67. She also is a former athlete of yours at the University of Texas, Steve. So we've got multiple connections to her, which is cool. Yeah, and she's she's killing it this year. After, even after our uh, right after our interview, she ended up going out and having an incredible race in Europe. So she's she's on fire right now. Yeah, she got second at USA 10K Championships on the track recently. Second only to the great Molly Huddle. And then got a big win in Europe in a 3K. Yeah. After we recorded this interview. But Marielle is, she's a University of Texas athlete training with Jerry Schumacher and the Bowerman crew and two time national team member. She was on the US team for both the Rio Olympics and the World Championships in Beijing in 2015. She's a stud, basically. And so we're going to talk to her about. All things running, all things elite running, but in particular, get a little bit from her on on sort of the mental side of things too, which is really fascinating. So I think everybody's going to enjoy this interview, and our main mission is that you become a big fan of Marielle's after you hear her, because even though she's got big results and made a couple of teams, she probably flies a little bit under the radar for the, for most track fans, and so it's good it's good to give her a platform to elevate her status with with you guys our audience so we're super excited to bring her on in just a bit we're also excited about our intro here steve as we're watching it i think we're now seven minutes away from the diamond league monaco steeplechase for the women where we've got emma coburn courtney frericks and colleen quigley who's back and healthy and racing there they're going to be going in a stack absolutely stacked steeplechase which we're going to tee up here in just a second. Trying to break nine, I believe the pacemaking is going to be set at world record pace, at least according to the Monaco website. And so it's going to be on fire, but it's going to be happening while we're recording. So we're going to give you a, a live reaction to the Monaco Diamond League as it goes off. And as you're listening to this, you can go back and look at the results and potentially find the video on NBC Sports Gold if you are a member. First thing I wanted to do is set the table a little bit on the Diamond League meets. We haven't talked about this a lot. We've, we've mentioned Diamond Leagues. I think everybody out there as listeners knows they're a big deal and others may have drilled in a little bit more in terms of exactly what's going on with Diamond League meets. But this is it's an international series of outdoor meets. Typically starts in April with Doha and we'll go all the way till the end of August. And at least this season, there's 14 different meets represented from all over the world. The Prefontaine Classic, which we've talked about, is one of the meets and is the only U.S. representative in this series. We also have Rome and Oslo and Paris, Doha we mentioned, and then Zurich and Brussels later in the season. So it's big meets primarily in Europe. And and it's a series in that they don't necessarily perform all disciplines at all meets, but 
but all of the disciplines get five to seven races or events through the series. And those that are competing in these events will score points that build towards a Diamond League championship that happens at the end of the season. And in this case, it's happening across the final two meets of the series in Zurich and Brussels, which are back-to-back on the 30th and the 31st of August. In the case of the steeple, which we're going to be calling, they actually had five steeple events for the women represented. And this Monaco steeple is the fourth of the fifth, with the next one being the final in Brussels on the 31st. And so it's a, it's a big deal from a point standpoint. And it's a big deal because the field is absolutely stacked. <laughs> just, for, just for reference, if you make it to the final and the top 12 point scorers make it to the final, if you make it to the final, the winner of the final wins $50,000 US. Second place gets $20,000, ten grand for third, and it, it goes on down through eighth place that gets $2,000. And each of these individual races also has cash on the line. The winner of this race today in Monaco will win ten grand, and that kind of scales down depending on your place. But even eighth place gets a thousand dollars. So there's money on the line, plus there's prestige on the line. These are the biggest meets, and certainly the most prestigious meets outside of global championships in the world. So it's kind of a big deal. And then you add on top of that the fact that this field basically is is the same field you had in the Olympic final or the world championship final minus the Dopa Roots you bet. Yeah. So it's absolutely stacked. And, you know, as I look at it, Steve, there's, there's about six women who have a chance to make big waves at the front of this race. Four of those happen to be Kenyans. And then the two Americans, Emma and Courtney, of course, they got first and second in the world championships last summer. Beatrix Chepkovic, Cellophane, or Cellophane, Chespol, Ivan Kinyang are the three major players from the Kenyan side of things. Of course, Beatrix Chepkovic is the one who finished fourth in the world championships last year after running around the first water jump and having to backtrack, then later ch- tripping up a little bit and having to chase down the field again to finish fourth. She also finished fourth in Rio, but she has. Her PR, 859, this year in Paris earlier this year. Of course, they've got the 19-year-old Salafine Chespol, who hasn't necessarily done well in major global championships, but is an absolute stud. She's won, She's run 858 PR. Just recently won World Juniors at 19 years of age. She's got a 901 from Paris early, earlier this year, so she was beaten by Chepkovic there, but is absolutely a, a big, big player in this field. You've got... Having Kinyang, who finished third behind Emma and Courtney at Worlds last year, has also had a solid year, has run 9.03 in Paris, beat Emma earlier this year in Oslo on the famous meet where the the hurdle was set up at the wrong height initially, and then has a 9-flat PR. And then, of course, you've got Emma and Courtney, who were first and second at Worlds last year, and we know their stories have run both 902 and 903, are clearly trying to get under nine in this field. And then, you know, we're happy to see Colleen Quigley make it back. She's making her season debut in this race. So, Steve, we just, we just saw it go down, and 
The action was absolutely insane. They had a pacer, Caroline Tuagong from Kenya, who was leading out, and the intention was to go out at world record pace, which, for reference, Ruth Jabet, the doper, has the current world record, or at least what was the current world record in 8.52, which is 9.57 per kilometer. The pacer was supposed to go out in world record pace, 9.56-ish, and which is 70 to 71 second laps, absolutely flying over the course of hurdles and, and water jumps. The pacer did her job, and then Beatrice Chepkoic took over after that. What did we just witness? We just witnessed a world fucking record is what we just witnessed. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still buzzing, Chris. I'm a little bit just, I'm in absolute shock. When we were watching her run, I don't think I had watched um, Chep Koech in full flight before. I've always seen her every race I've seen. Um, she's always been in the mix, you know, or doing stupid stuff like deciding to skip the steeple pit and then go all the way back and then try to catch back up and try to get fourth in the world. And I knew, you know, you and I had talked about her a few times. I think she ran, I think we had her on call. I had her in one of the prediction contests we had as being a mid-pack player on a 1500 meter race that she ran, or maybe it was a mile indoors. I can't remember. You know, she is, she is, I was saying, and when we tried to do the play-by-play, I think she is by far the best runner in the women's steeple field. And I think she's the best, you know, overall runner in terms of 1500 meter 5k talent. She's the best in the world. And Chris, if she didn't show it today, I mean, she went through the first 1K dead on just a little bit under three at three minutes, I think. Um, yeah, it was and, 255, I mean, it was pretty much what they wanted. I mean, she was the only one that went with the pacer, truly. Everybody else, she was right on the pacer's heel. Everybody else, there's a little gap to the second pack that was also strung out behind her. But she was on the pace, on world record pace after K, but then... After the pacer stepped off, she just kept extending her lead. And I, it was from one k to two k, Chris, where the race was over. There were a couple others. They were they got all they got all lined out and sort of stretched out in a line. Um, and Emma and Courtney sat back and looked like they were in a little bit of trouble. But as we've noted over over the years of watching the women's steeplechase, the women do don't fuck around at all, Chris. And they get after it and they go right away, right to the front and push hard. And so we don't sleep, we don't, we don't worry too much when we see our Americans a little bit further back. We know they're wily, they know how to get to where they need to go. And um, damned if that didn't happen too, Courtney and Emma with two laps to go in the race, you know, everybody's watching Chepkoach run off the front and Courtney and Emma find themselves where they need to be right up at the lead of that second pack, nowhere near Chepkoach, but still in the hunt for that second pack. And man, Courtney Frerichs, Chris, just runs away from the pack over the last lap and runs nine minutes and 0.85, almost breaks eight min- nine minutes and breaks the American record. We have a new American record holder in the steeplechase. And Chris, your prediction finally, your prediction came true <laughs> that you predicted earlier this year. Emma Coburn is not the best steeplechaser in the U.S. anymore. At this point, Courtney Frerichs is the best steeplechaser in the U.S. Yeah, it was insane. I think the cool thing to me, and it was a little weird watching the feed because Chepkoich had such a gap. I mean, it went from 10 to 20 to 30, 40, 50, 60. I think ultimately she was probably 100 meters up at the finish. So we didn't get a great looks at the second pack because they were following Chepkoich more. But when we did see Courtney, 
her moves were strong and definitive. And so it was just awesome to see that confidence from her. I mean, she ran around Emma pretty early and didn't look back. And you could see Emma struggling and starting to fade a little bit. At one point, Cordy and Emma were two and three, but ultimately having Kenny and Kane came back on Emma at the end and, and beat her by about half a second. So it was Courtney in second in nine flat, Ken Yang, Kay Yang in 904, and then Emma in 905 to go third and fourth with the other Kenyan, Gerudo, in fifth in 907. But unbelievable running from Courtney. I mean, she was fearless. No, and, and, and she, she played it smart. You know, Chris, one of the things that has been a bit of a criticism that we've had of her is that maybe she plays it a little bit too smart, you know, or, or a little too conservative. It looks like that, 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 a, that a bell got rung this last year when she got second and she realized she could have been the best in the world. And she is now in a position where um, she can think that. But what we just saw out of Kep, Chep Koech, there's she broke the world record by a full eight seconds, Chris. That is not conceivable, when you, especially when you consider that the former world record that, that was just broken, it was was 8.52 by a known drug cheat um, and who we believe is a drug cheat who pretty much has been called out, but it hasn't been proven quite yet. So what do we have to say about Chep Koech? Can we look at this and be, <laughs> and be anything but skeptical? I, I'll tell you this, Chris, this is what I said on the play-by-play. I was like, hush, Chris, don't tell me she's on drugs. She's such a beautiful steeplechaser. I don't know what to, what to say. So, you know, I mean... It is, I mean, the, it, is, the thing. it is strange to see her improve, the, the level of her improvement and the way she controlled that field. She was 8.59 in Paris earlier this year, which was about, what was that, about three weeks ago. So it's really hard to conceive of a, of, a, of a situation in the steeple where someone improves by 15 seconds when you're already the best in the world. So, you know, I, I'm going to shut up and let you pontificate on this subject. <laughs> it raised some asterisks. For sure, but I will say this about Chepkowicz. Most of the East Africans have terrible hurdle form. They usually they do this funny like double leg hop over the barriers and hurdles. And even though they have massive aerobic talent, it it means that they perhaps leave some potential on the table, even though they're already at the top of the world. Chepkowicz has all the aerobic tools that an East African brings to the table, but she also has beautiful hurdle form. And so that is a distinction and a difference from her country women that, to me, separates her for sure. Is it a separator by 15 seconds in one jump? I don't know. She also looked very smooth. I mean, it almost... It looked effortless as she crossed the finish line, so that also raises some question marks. She could have clearly run faster had she had someone with her over the final 2K. But for now, I'm just going to enjoy what I just watched. Yes! Because it was I, got, I can't believe you just said it! <laughs> it was, uh, it was so amazing. Happy, Chris. That makes me <laughs> so happy that at least... You know, we, we probably agree on this point, but this is what I've been arguing with you about you know it's like can we just at least for a little while celebrate the beauty of the moment <laughs> yeah. and what that yes. was and what she did and also how courtney destroyed that field over the last 400 meters chris i mean yeah. to put four seconds on hyven kiang and emma coburn she put five seconds four seconds on both of them over the final 400 meters that's like 
boom. Like, I mean, it's over. I don't know how court, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how Emma comes back from this, you know, yeah. how she fights back and whether or not this is a changing of the, a full on changing of the guard, you know? Well, exactly. I mean, what's interesting too is that as I was looking at the field, Emma of those favorites is the oldest one. She'll be 28 in October. And Chepkoic is 27. Kid Yang is 26. Courtney's 25. Chesspole is 19. So this is a relatively young group of favorites that will have at least a few years of racing to come against each other which is super exciting. And it's going to be interesting to see how everybody responds because clearly Chepkowicz set a new bar. Everybody had been talking about nine minutes as the big barrier, but now we got to talk about 845 (laughs) because Chepkowicz just blew the doors off the whole thing. Really crazy, but super exciting for Courtney and to see that change of guard. And hey, you know, another one of my predictions comes true. The first one, I think, from that early season episode that actually came true. One other thing I want to note as we're going off on this steeplechase final, um, there are nine women at 9-10 or better. Um, This this event now is is real. This women's steeplechase for so many years, Chris, was called sort of the bastard step... It's always kind of been the bastard stepchild of the track and field world, but, but... it it's now gotten to the point where everybody understands how difficult a race it is. But the women's steeple has always been known sort of as where the also rans or the don't have its go to try to be an international level runner. And that's not the case anymore. This is a, a nine ten for the steeple is so legit. And you've got nine women going under that barrier. Almost all of them are Kenyans, Ugandans, and then two Americans. And we've got a third American, Colleen Quigley, who did not have, you know, we know, we, we know where she's at. She was, she, we know that she's been coming off of an injury. But Chris, on a really rough day, first, but this is like a, basically a, 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 her first steeple, big rust buster. She's only five seconds off her personal best. Only five seconds. With yeah, Colleen she ran 920. And Colleen and Courtney are going to be forces to be reckoned with over the next couple of years. We are going to see the records books rewritten. I think we may see if this world record does not hold up or other and the other world record, which we know is what the, the former world record, which we already know isn't, isn't really real. I think we have a chance to see an American be a world record holder. It's such an exciting, it's so exciting for this event to be legitimate. And number two, it's so exciting to have three Americans who are in the mix, who are as good as anybody in the world. Yeah, quickly ran 920 for, for 12th, but. That was her debut, as he meant, as she mentioned. I mean, she just literally got off the plane from Portland going to Monaco a couple of days ago. And, and I don't think, you know, that was necessarily in the cards until she was able to respond from getting back to Portland and kind of focusing on recovery. I've got to remind people that Courtney opened in 919 in Oslo yes. not too long ago. So to open in 920, Colleen's got to feel pretty good about that. I know it's, it probably isn't fun finishing 12th in such a field, but I think that's a solid time for her. And hopefully she'll have a chance over the next month with several more big meets to come to, to show what she can do and potentially get under her 915 PR. So 
Anyway, it's a big day for the steeple. It's a big day for Americans in the steeple. Congrats to Courtney Frex, who is now the American record holder in that event, unseating Emma Coburn. Amazing. Crazy. All right, so a couple more things I wanted to get to here before we turn to our interview with Marielle. First of all, Steve, I've got to think that Desiree Linden has been listening to our podcast, <laughs> perhaps getting in on the running rants because she recently tweeted a confession on on the interwebs that I wanted to share and get your reaction to. She says, confession, I do the extra add-on at the end of the run, so I hit the exact mileage on my GPS watch. Some find it crazy, but I consider it finishing the job. It sets the tone for doing all the little things. Hashtag sorry, not sorry. So I don't know if she's speaking specifically to you, Steve, or not, but what's your I'll reaction? Yes, either way, I'll take it. <laughs> what do you think about Des gerbling? She didn't use that I think, word, but I, I think that um, I think that I'm an old school guy who just kind of sees things. I don't know. You know, I, I I've gotten a lot of flack for that uh, over the last couple of weeks. People have been uh, like poking at me, and um, you know, basically, I'll shut my mouth since I just got called out by Des Linden, even if it wasn't specifically me. So I'll, <laughs> I'll maybe I'll pipe down a little bit and not not give so many people give people so much shit. <laughs> It does seem that that was the most talked about rant from our Running Rants podcast. Yeah, it seemed it. Yep. I, I did get the the runner that I had mentioned in that Running Rants podcast who did the lap around the parking lot. She she called me over yesterday after the run and wanted to show me her watch showing <laughs> showing 11.96. <laughs> that she Whoa. she hadn't gerbled to get to the 12.0 so you know you win some you lose some i guess steve <laughs> it's okay it's okay but hey whatever works for you desi linden don't change a thing no please don't please don't <laughs> all right so last thing i want to talk about is actually an email from a listener that i just wanted to quickly address and of course, we love getting your emails. So thanks to everybody who reaches out either with your questions or a lot of times we just get thank yous and celebrations. This one, it's kind of a mix of that, but let me just lay it out there, Steve. This is from Kathy and I want to thank Kathy for the email. She says, Hi, Chris. I've been an avid listener of your podcast ever since I found it last September. I wanted to point out something that you might not know. I regularly hear you and Steve telling your guests that your listeners are serious runners who log 80 to 120 miles per week. Well, I may not be a serious runner by that definition, but I am serious about running. I've been running three times per week consistently for about five years since my late 30s, currently logging 15 to 20 miles per week. My mileage probably puts me in the minority compared to your other listeners. Hell, maybe I'm even the only one at this level, but I'm out here and I'm listening. I wanted you to know you guys are always talking about setting big, hairy goals. And I've just set a new one. So keep doing what you do because it's helping keep me motivated. Mm. Thank you, Kathy. So first of all, thanks, Kathy, for that. We thank you for reaching out and for listening. What do you want to say to Kathy, Steve? Keep on keeping on. I mean, that's what, you, what else, you know? Like, <laughs> it's, it's moving to me. I know we've been doing this for a while now, Chris. And um, we always have fun. Right, we always enjoy ourselves. We've said this. We would probably do this uh, if nobody listened to us. We'd still keep piping these out and put them out there. 
I don't know that there's been a single time that you or I have been, we maybe have struggled to try to find the time to get it in, but never have we struggled to either come up with topics or to enjoy the time that we have when we're doing it, no matter where we are, whether we're on the road, whether we're together in Austin. But I don't know that I expected to have the kind of impact that we're having. You know, we, I expected to have that kind of impact in Austin where we see people day to day. But as we've told our podcast training group many times, um, especially in this cycle when we added some new folks, we, had a, we have a larger group. It's just, it's really, um, it's motivating and a little bit humbling to realize that uh, there's such a need for our kind of tough love and our kind of passion um, in the running world. And um, we don't judge you, as Chris said, we judge no one based on what they run for speed. We judge everyone based on the intent and the attitude and how much they're in and that's all we care about. Are you all the way in? That's what we want to know. Um, we've got a group of athletes at Rogue. Um, I've got a subset of my group that's kind of got a new hashtag called all the way the fuck in. And uh, we're, we, we're, I'm on that train as well in terms of my attitude. And I know you are too, Chris. Like we're all the way in for people. And to, to have folks respond this way and to feel our love for the sport and to feel our love for them in general um, is really humbling and moving. Agree with that. And I do think sometimes we do, not just with perhaps listeners, but with also with our world here in Austin and in Dallas, where we now are with training, we, we sometimes get that reputation or assumption that people think we're all about the faster runners or those that are logging a lot of miles per week. And I hope those that have listened to this long to us know that that's definitely not the case. We, as you said, embrace runners of all paces, of all levels. It's really about commitment. Are you in or are you not? And so, Kathy, if you're in with us, we're in with you. We thank you for listening. And I would, I think you'd be surprised to know there are probably others in your camp in terms of where they are from a mileage standpoint. And so we hope that everyone feels like they can get something from what we talk about, whether they're running 15 miles a week or they're running 100 miles a week, because all the principles are the same. and. As you said, Steve, it's really just about having that common attitude. And the one thing that we want people to know is that oftentimes those newer runners or those runners that are doing you know, perhaps lower mileage than others or at a slower pace than others, oftentimes they get sort of left out in the discussions about training or in the discussions about big goals because people assume or perhaps treat folks in that category, like they don't deserve big goals. And we're the opposite of that. You know, for us, it's about if you're committed, we want you to dream big with us and we want you to take whatever your starting point is and we'll build from there. And so thank you for listening, Kathy. And we're excited to have you on this journey and hopefully we can help you with your new big hairy goal, which you didn't specify, but now that you put it out there, I'm going to be drilling into that with my follow-up email. So watch out. <laughs> All right. You know, Chris, it's kind of a, a, a segue is that you and I can get just exci as excited about having that conversation with, with her as we can about the conversation we're just about to have with Marielle Hall. And we just see it the same, you know, and I think that that's probably some of what our listener base um, appreciates about us. And uh, it's certainly never going to change. So. If you like us, keep listening. And if you don't, you know, tell somebody else, maybe they will. <laughs>
Yeah. And keep on keeping on. All right. Yeah. So now we'll bring on Marielle. As we mentioned, we're super excited to have her on. Former UT athlete, two-time World U.S. team member in, in both the 5K and the 10,000. Recent silver medalist at the U.S. Track and Field Championships in the 10K. Bowerman babe. And also just a great person. So we hope you enjoy this conversation with Marielle. We're welcoming Marielle Hall to the show. How are you doing, Marielle? I'm good. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. All the way from Switzerland. Yes. First time here. So it's been good. Super excited to have you piping in as you prep for your European season. Let's jump in, Steve. I'm going to let you, since you have a relationship with Marielle, I'll let you kick it off with the first question. Cool. Awesome. Marielle, I've um, been looking forward to having a chance to get you on the podcast for a long time. Um, and then with your, with your big result at the 10K this, this, in this last month at USATF, it was, just felt like it was a really good timing for you um, to come on if we could get you. And we're so super happy to have you. So thanks again for taking some time out of your busy schedule. I know you had a long day already, but hopefully we'll ask some good questions and give you some some fuel for thought. And hopefully what our biggest goal is that we have some of our listeners um, will start following you um, if they haven't already and start to feel you as part of their, that, that being like they've got a chance to be on your team. So we're excited about that. But we usually ask our guests kind of a, it's not really a traditional first question, but it's more of a a big picture thing. So we let you riff on it a little bit. And um, I guess our, the first question I have is tell us about your running journey. Like when you started running, um, maybe up to about your high school years, tell us how you got started and, and what running sort of became for you in those years. Um, so running for me started in, in middle school. I can honestly still remember my first day of practice. I didn't know anyone. I remember I brought a book to practice, which wasn't cool. <laughs> I was, <laughs> yeah, I remember all these things. I was reading a book about George Washington Carver because I was going to do a book report about him or something. And I had that book with me. And, you know, I, I just specifically remember we went for a run. The coach was telling us, you know, who we were. We probably weren't going to be able to keep up with this group. They had been running for a really long time. and. I I remember I just went I just started running and I was running with the girl that they told us we weren't you know going to be able to keep up with who ended up being one of my best friends still a really good friend to this day her dad coached me um, he was my first coach and he coached me all the way through um, my freshman year of high school so that was just I think what I big takeaway early on from running was um, you know like my first friendship outside of my family. I have an older sister. Um, but if you have siblings, you know, you're kind of, you're forced into friendship before you actually become friends. That takes <laughs> um, so I just remember that was my first branching out, making a friend, kind of pushing myself in an environment that I wasn't comfortable in, didn't know anyone. And it just kind of felt like an entryway into, you know, into relationships outside of my family, which I felt like at the time was all I really had. Um, <laughs> what were you planning to do with that book? <laughs> I don't know. It was just kind of like my safeguard. I was like, if nobody talks to me, I'll have my book. <laughs> uh, that was, yeah, but I can honestly just remember that day 
just you know, like it happened yesterday. I, I've when I was training back in New Jersey, I used to do do that. It's called the Big O. I used to run that loop sometimes, just because it, you know, it's kind of surreal to be still competing and running um, when you started at such a young age and maybe like had um, a pretty clear vision of wanting to be successful at a young age. So I don't know. I think that's just a cool memory that I have still from you know my first day of practice. Um, I can still kind of see the run in that day and to be still be friends with, um, with that girl and to still have a relationship with her family. It's pretty cool just to have for yourself over over all the years. Did you play other sports too, or did you just find running and then stay with running exclusively? Or did you do other things as well? Um, I did some like I did dance a lot when I was young. I did like ballet and jazz and tap. I played a little bit of soccer. I did some basketball. I think I did karate for like a day. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of all over the place. I wasn't. None of my parents were really into like formalized sports. I think finding running was kind of, um, kind of felt a little bit lucky with that one. But they were never. That was never their, um, what they were looking for experience-wise for their kids. I think if we gravitated towards sports, good for us. But um, I feel like my parents were always big on, my mom went to a performing arts high school. So she was always, you know, she wanted her kids to play violin and the piano and dance and do some other things. So um, sports kind of came a little bit later and maybe a little bit less organic or a little bit more organic than traditional, just like club and um, team sports. So you've had a lot of success at a bunch of different levels. You know, in high school, you were U.S. junior champion in the 15 and the 3K. You competed at the World Junior Championships. You have an NCAA champion in the 5k you've been on a world championship team you've been on an olympic team so what has kept you in the sport you know what does it mean to you beyond just having a place where you can run fast um i think it i mean it goes back to maybe what i was saying earlier just i've had a lot of good relationships through the sport i've met a lot of i've had just a lot of good guidance from people who, you know, have believed in me and, and really um, encouraged me to continue going. It's also just kind of been a good personal, um, just a good way for me to get to know myself better and to challenge myself. Um, I, I feel like a lot of the things that I do now, even if it's outside the sport, is still kind of with in the back of my mind is to better myself for running. So I feel like it's always just been something that has pushed me to kind of be better in other avenues. And I, you know, I appreciate that because I don't know that everybody always gets that push or it's as consistent as it has been for me with having running. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've, I've gotten to go places that I never would have had the opportunity to go meet people. Um, just kind of goes back to opportunity. You want to be able to take all of the opportunities that you can get. And I feel like running has provided me with 
just, you know, I, I couldn't really, I don't think there's anything else in my life that could have given me the things and allowed me to go meet and see people the way that running has. Yeah. I mean, you live a pretty, you pretty live a pretty cool life, Mario. I think a lot of people would be jealous. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't take that for granted. I mean, there, I think there's people on the team with a little bit different situations. And this is, I feel really hard to, you know, if you're, if you have family and kids, um, that me the travel time and the, the amount of time you're away racing and just kind of tired from training that may kind of cut into family life. But I think for me at this point in my life, there isn't really anything else I could think of doing that. Um, yeah, there's no reason not to be here and not to try. Um, yeah. So I definitely recognize that I'm in a pretty unique situation and fortunate for it. But it hasn't always been easy. You know, you've had, you had ups and downs here and there, including during your time in Texas when Steve had some influence. I know Bev and Steve both had their influence over your college career. How have you dealt with those ups and downs to stay in it? Yeah, I, I think even now it feels as if my, like, even professional career has been up and down. It's it's never been consistent. I think I've just matured a little bit more to deal with it better. I kind of felt like in college, I just, um, it was just hard for me to, I just, it always felt like I was running out of time. Like I wasn't ever really hitting the mark that I created for myself at the, at the right time. You know, I was always, too late for something or not quite coming around at the right time for something else. And I feel like I let that build on itself. Like if I didn't get to this point by my sophomore year, then it was going to be way harder to get to the point that I really wanted to be at my junior year. And I kind of just let that build um, on, on every year and, you know, every competition and, you know, I still feel like there's that pressure now where I should have hit some imaginary result by now or summited some mountain already. But I think maybe I just, I still have those anxieties, but I do a lot better job of just kind of being engrossed in the day, doing my best um, to do, do the best I can on that day. And then, you know, worry at night, <laughs> wake up again and start over. <laughs> so. I still am, it still is like um, something that I I feel like I work through and deal with. Um, I just think now I do a better job of putting my energy into the training and the work while I'm doing it and kind of worrying later and resetting. <laughs> That's really, it's really interesting, Marielle, because, you know, I know we didn't talk very much about your high school career, but you had high expectations for yourself, even right off the bat. Um, and, and you definitely were someone who, as I remembered when, we were, when I was recruiting you, and as I look back on your high school career, I mean, you had a phenomenal high school coach um, who was able to guide you and, and, and help, you, help, you perform, help you get better 
intelligently, smartly with the right kind of volume and the right kind of intent. But you always have even and then when I coached you at Texas, you just carried this extra level of expectation for yourself. Um, can you maybe give us a little bit of insight of where that comes from? Do you do you think that's something that you were born with or that or is, do you think that there's something in this sport that pulled that out of you? Or do you think it's something maybe you developed over time as a decision to have that kind of expectation to be as good as you could possibly be and to compete against the very best. Because since the day I met you, there's no doubt that that has been a common theme for you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I feel like I am, I'm a pretty relaxed person, but I also feel like I'm like wired pretty tightly, like pretty high strung, <laughs> which yeah. are two that I don't know actually come together well or can even come together at all um but i i do think like from a young age my parents are always um you know jokingly but in a serious way i used to you know make projects for school and one little thing would be off and i'd rip the whole thing up and like throw it in the air you know like it's ruined <laughs> nothing worked <laughs> i was definitely that kind of child but i also was you know like running outside and climbing trees and I didn't need someone to like blow a whistle for a soccer game for me to want to be engaged and play. Like I felt like I was always pretty free in that sense. Like I could um, like create moments for myself without them being um, made for me. So I feel like maybe that's more, I combine the two. So I, I don't know if it's like something that I've, built over time or something sometimes it feels like I've been this way for a very long time um and in other ways I, I do feel like my high school coach really kind of awoken my eyes to the possibility of things that I could accomplish and where I could go um like my junior year in high school before I met him I wasn't even really thinking about running in college like I wanted to if I could but it wasn't something that you know this is this is my future this is my path it was kind of like if this is gonna be something that helps me get into school then great if if not then you know it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to not continue running at a competitive level in college um so I feel like it's been that period of high school definitely really awakened me to having bigger expectations for myself and kind of rewiring. Um, I think when I started out when I was younger, I was definitely pretty intense high school, um, my first two years and maybe I was still really involved, but I wasn't as maybe intense as I was growing up. And then I feel like it comes back in with waves, um, coaching, having him coach me. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure if I really answered your question, but <laughs> well, it was it was yeah i think you did it was a it was just a question to try to help our listeners get to know kind of the way that this process works for elite athletes because you know they're very interested many of our listeners are they're not elite athletes themselves and and they want they i love for them to hear and see realize that the same struggles that they go through you guys go through and um while they might not have the opportunity to um have been coached by Derek Thompson at at, at a crucial juncture to help them hit from one level to the next level, they still struggle with a lot of the same things. And I know expectations is one. 
Um, and so I was just curious about that. So at your, you know, as we talked a little bit about your your run at Texas, as Chris alluded to, you had some ups and downs. And then, um, but it seems like, you know, there was a transition at UT uh, with Bev Kearney was let go. And then the team, the, the whole team changed. You got a new coach in Brad Herbster. And you came out of the box that cross-country season your senior year just absolutely on fire. Talk a little bit about when is it that you sort of shifted that, um, oh, I guess, is it was it kind of like, oh, I don't have any more time, so I've got to get this done now? Or were there some other subtler things that happened that sort of helped you make that jump, at least from the standpoint where, because I know always knew you believed you could do it, but then there's always this other thing about how do you actually make it happen? Um, so talk a little bit about that, anything that, any things that might have changed or maybe there was no change and it was just consistency. You know, it was just time to happen. I'm, I'm very curious about that process for you because that day that you won the NCAA championships in the 5K really was a game changer for you and put you on a path that has allowed you to do a lot, a lot of other things and continue to do this sport at the highest level. Yeah, I, I feel like I, I started off that summer with all those changes kind of um, a little bit just a little flat like I wasn't really I was still running I was putting in miles but I had you know I I wasn't really I didn't hadn't circled like NCAA championships on my calendar the day that we found out that everything changed I was just kind of like um I was just kind of going through the motions more or less like I was taking some summer classes I hadn't really thought too much ahead um I don't think we really found out about what was happening until, you know, later in the summer. Uh, and by that point, I feel like I had honed in a little bit more on, okay, this is, you know, this is my last year coming up. I'm either going to make something happen for myself or I'm going to move on and, and do something else. You know, I was applying for positions and jobs and looking into the next step of things. and. Um, I was putting my all into running as well, but I think I was, you know, I was at a point where I was like, either I make this happen for myself or I'm just, you know, I'm not good enough. The end, I can still run and compete and find other avenues to enjoy the sport. But if, if I can't do it this year with this competition, then like, that's, that's <laughs> enough. <for me. laughs> I've had enough. Um, yeah. So yeah, I feel like the biggest thing or maybe something that I still try and channel for myself is just that desperation feeling. Um, I felt like for me, my last year, that race in particular, I just remember thinking like, I literally need this. You know, nobody else, everybody else who I'm running with is going to be fine. They're going to get a contract or they're going to be able to continue running. Nobody is going to. Um, look at them and say that they don't have a, a future in the sport. But like, for me, I was like, I, I need to do this. There's no other option for me to um, continue going unless I do something today. And just, I think I've, you know, I've had that. I had that feeling the following year making a world team. I was just like, I have to be here. You know, like I know my teammate at the time, Ajay is like, I know she's making the team, you know, like um, <laughs> she's, you know, no brainer, but it's just like, for me, I have to do this. I don't want to be at home all summer alone doing, I don't know what, just training and 
Cross-country um, work. <laughs> pretty much. Those are my thoughts. So I feel like my last year, it felt desperate. Um, and I think even now, I, I still try and I, I feel like that's a cue when I'm running or racing. If I feel really desperate, if I feel like, you know, like I have to do this, there's no other option, then I can really get something out of myself that, you know, maybe you can't really get in practice or um, in on smaller stages. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like long story short, <laughs> that's I feel like how I um, kind of was able to flip the switch for myself the last year. I'll never forget. I'll never forget. Um, I didn't get to see I watched the NCAA championship race on TV like everybody else. But I was at the at the um, at the in Des Moines at the U.S. Championships that right after that, and I'll never forget watching you and Brad interact. You were sitting, you were as before the five k started, and I think you got third that day, didn't you? Set third, second or third? I can't remember exactly, but I'll I'll never forget watching you and Brad interact right before the gun went off. And you, he said something to you, and you laughed, and I was like, well, that's a great thing to see someone who's smiling and laughing when they're getting ready to run one of the biggest races of their lives so i knew that there were there was some other things going on there as well that you felt freer and more relaxed and more and there's nothing like seeing an athlete be able to have that kind of reaction prior to the race you probably don't remember it but it was one of those things that i just remember going wow that's really cool that's a really amazing to see <laughs> yeah i mean I, I feel like with my last year also it was most it was it was more about just me taking more ownership of things that I wanted to accomplish and the work that I wanted to put in. And I, I feel like I, um, you know, it was since it was his first year coaching, I, I, I don't think he was, um, you know, he didn't want to change anything. If there was nothing to change, he didn't want to, you know, only thing that he wanted to do was help me accomplish the things that I wanted to accomplish. And I, I just felt like I took more ownership. I didn't feel bad about, doing something on my own or getting more in or less in. It was really just about like the day to day breaking down the big goal into, you know, into steps and just having a process oriented approach and, and really just having more accountability, urgency, um, all those things I felt like, you know, I, I felt like for my first three years, my work ethic was definitely there, but I, I, I do think I, didn't have as much accountability for myself. Um, maybe the, the urgency I needed on race day and then, um, just overall confidence on race day that, you know, you're ready to what the work that you've put in is good enough to help you compete against the people that you're lining up against. You lined up against Abby D'Agostino that day. She was the favorite going for her eighth NCAA title. You had zero NCAA titles. But yet, that may be, you know, you're standing there and that's the, this might be the make or break race for you, whether this could be a career or this would just be the last Legion race you could ever run. So there's pressure there. And you talked about sort of recognizing that pressure and having it, channeling it into being a good thing. but how how do you how would you coach or help someone else understand how to take pressure like that and use it in a positive way versus let it cause you to fold under the pressure 
Yeah, uh, that's that's so hard. I, I think it varies person to person. For me, having confidence on race day had, has always been about doing doing the work in practice, and you know that that may not mean that you're like killing every day that you're the best at your practice, but it just means that you've created a process for yourself that you believe in, you know, you're going to follow it. And then on race day, you know, there's nothing to, it's okay to be nervous, but there's nothing to necessarily be nervous about because you, you've done all of you could up until this point. And I think I really embraced that a lot my last year. And I also just learned how to relax a little bit. I only remember two thoughts from that race. And the first, um, you know, the first 200 meters, I remember thinking, I love this. You know, like, this is literally so much fun. Um, I'm so happy to be here. And then the last 200, I remember thinking, you know, what I was saying before, just like, I need this. <laughs> um, those are the only two thoughts that I really have from that race. But I think the beginning of just being excited, wanting to be there, that those thoughts are always really powerful. Um, sometimes you have to pretend that you're excited to be there, <laughs> that you're happy, <laughs> good. <laughs> you know, I've told that to myself that in races where I felt terrible, and um, you know, it, it obviously works in different ways when you're when you wholeheartedly believe it. But um, I do think that just having general enthusiasm and excitement about what you're doing and where you are goes a long way. Um, it just kind of gives you adds levity to you. Um, it just, you know, I definitely, I feel lighter automatically just as a, like, a pressure, um, just like in my form and, and everything. I can like feel tension melting away if I really do try and embrace the, where I am and, um, in, in the moment that helps me. But I guess everybody, it's a little bit of trial and error. You got to work through things to figure out exactly what you need to tell yourself um, to get the most out of yourself on race day. I love it. I love this. I need this. <laughs> That's pretty perfect as mantras. For sure. So you've had, Steve would say, two world-class coaches in Derek Thompson and Jerry Schumacher now, but I would say he's leaving himself out of that mix. So at least three world-class coaches count. Steve, what have you learned from each of them? I still use a few Steve-isms in workouts. <laughs> the last rep will take care of itself. I remind myself of that sometimes <laughs> when, I, when I'm a little tired. Um, I, I feel like I've learned with Derek. Um, I, it's way different coaching, but... Derek is always kind of like this is more of a like physical thing than mental, but he'll always let you go. If you're having a day and you feel really good, you know, and you want to run 10 seconds faster than he told you, he's just going to watch. Um his telltale was always, you know, if you go by too fast, he'll say nothing on the watch. If you're too slow, he'll, you know, he'll be in your face. Um <laughs> but and so from that I think it was just a little bit more learning how to read your own body just being aware that, um, you know, killing a session or doing more than prescribed may not always be in your best interest. Like the workouts were written in a way that they were 
you know, because he wants you to be able to have, you know, a full season. And, and this is where he thinks you are at this time. And I feel like sometimes just with the nature of the way that we practice, the frequency of it, we would get into little, um, a few race day practices, which um, I think it was hard for me to hold on to fitness for as long as I needed to in that kind of environment. We were just, you know, we practiced, we were on the track maybe sometimes four or five times a week. and it was, it was just a lot. So with him, it was just more learning how to read, read my own body and, and give coaches the feedback that they need. You know, they're not gonna know everything and you have to really be that, um, you have to be a good communicator, which I think is something I've always struggled with a bit. Steve will probably tell you this. (laughs) I'm not like a huge talker, I feel like my commitment to the work and to you as my coach is me showing up every day and doing the training. I never really have much to say (laughs) outside of um, just doing the running and the work. I feel like that's my communication. Um, But yeah, with Derek and even now with Jerry, it's like there's people here and and with Steve, like coaches are always going to be there as a resource. But if you're not um, gunning, if you're not open, if you're not going to them, if you're not talking with them about what you want and, and, and where you are, then, you know, they can't really help you. They can only help you so much. Um, so I think with all three coaches that aligns and especially with Derek, I think that was one thing that I wasn't really able to do there was make adjustments for myself. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I would say the same, same with Steve. I, I think communication's always hard, especially coming in as you're an 18 year old. I moved cross country, really high expectations for myself. You know, I definitely don't think I was a consistent communicator. I was always like one big talk a year and then, <laughs> then hopefully that flushes everything out. Um, but I think to really get the most out of any relationship, coaching included, you have to kind of constantly have um, have a back and forth. Um, do you feel like you're able to do that with Jerry? Is that is that an environment that's encouraged there for you and for all the other people on the team? Yeah. Again, I think he is he is an open book. Like if you you want to talk to him, he's always there as a resource. But I, you know, I don't think he's He's not knocking down my door with <laughs> with ideas or advice. Like, not that not that he should be. You know, he has a ton of world class athletes that he's coaching. Um, so it's it's more just I think overall lesson in life that I've learned from all three coaches is if you want to be a priority, you kind of have to make yourself that priority. If you want someone to give you information or feedback, you have to ask for it. There are very few situations. Maybe there are coaching situations that exist that are like this. I just haven't come across any, but um, it's really rare, I think, for you to have someone that just kind of pours information out for you. Um, but that may just be a coaching trick that <laughs> they want to see what you have to say and they want you to come to them. Um, 
But I think that that's been a similarity across all of my experiences. You have to communicate what you want for it to kind of come alive. <laughs> How did the transition to Bowerman come about? And what's that experience been like as you've now become integrated with the group? So I um, reached out to Jerry last summer, emailed him and kind of just said, like, I understand your commitment to the athletes that you have. There's This is it's a big group, a lot of high caliber athletes. Like, I understand that they're your priority at this point. But if there is a um, if there is any chance that you'd be interested in coaching me, then I would, you know, really love the opportunity to have, you know, a bunch of women to learn from and to train with and, and to have his guidance. I think that, you know, this group does a really good job at performing well throughout the year, consistent, strong performances, and also really showing up for big championships, which is something that I'm looking for out of myself. Uh, I just, I really, I felt like running with Derek and being back home was a really lucky situation. Not many, I think the hardest part about professional running for a lot of people is the amount of time you get to spend with your family and friends. And um, you're just not really in contact with those people for a majority of the year. So I was really fortunate. You know, my dad drove me to practice every weekend. I was working with a high school coach um, I had, was training with people that I had known since high school. So, you know, to see their accomplishments and to see us all growing together, that was just a fun environment, super laid back, um, but also really high expectations. And, you know, I really enjoyed that environment, but I, I just felt like I wasn't really performing on the same level as um, the rest of the, the group and the people that I was, that I was around. And, I don't know, that's frustrating on a personal level and also I think frustrating on a coaching level. Um, you know, if you're, if you have a formula that's working for the majority of your athletes, and not to say that I didn't see improvement, like I made a world team and an Olympic team under, under Derek. So I'm you know, really thankful for the results that I got there. Uh, it just felt like I wasn't really able to jump to the next level and, and, you know, once I made it to a world team or an Olympic team, compete, really be able to compete there. And um, yeah, I just, I felt like I had an opportunity to train. If I had an opportunity to train with this group, then, you know, why not take it? Um, again, I'm really big on opportunities. <laughs> you know, like if there's a possibility for a door to be opened, I definitely, I don't want to think back that you know I didn't take it or didn't open it so um Derek being just like a really close family friend and uh, a big mentor for me for a lot of years was really supportive with about the decision and um you know all you can ask for from a person is what which is what he gave me is he wants to see me be successful you hope that's with him or he, I would have hoped that I would have been able to do it there, but since it wasn't, um, 
just making a transition to hopefully being able to do better in a group environment that's more um, distance oriented. That's pretty awesome, though. I mean, you're an Olympian. <laughs> You've made two U.S. teams, and yet you recognized you needed a change and went out and made it happen. I mean, had you had you talked to Jerry before, or was it essentially a cold call email to say, "Hey, I'm just I'm just an Olympian over here. You you, you want to coach me?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wish it was more interesting, but that's pretty much it. <laughs> I was literally just like, um, I remember thinking at the time, I was like, "Ah, oh, there's you know a ton of people in that group. It's probably not going to work out." But I would be uh, regretful if I didn't at least ask and you know if you say no you say no you move on you find the next thing or you make the thing that you have work um but yeah jerry's super super nice guy and was just excited um you know i I think his big thing is if you want to be here then um he wants to coach you uh, as long as this is a situation that you've identified that is going to work for you and as long as you know it, it feels like it's going to be a good fit for the group, then you know he's excited about adding another, you know, another person to the group. And and I think that this group is just unique in that sense that it survives because there are a lot of talented women with all different skill sets. And you know, we we do train together. There are specific sessions for when you're coming up on a race or um you know getting into championship season but i think the majority of our training we do together which um at a professional level i think is pretty hard to come by so that's been nice so how does that work for you because jerry's got on that on that team you've got some you've got a good number of you've got some 1500 meter runners some 155 runners you've got um, and then a big group of marathoners, sort of, uh, I guess, in a sense, you're uh, have become kind of a 10K specialist, which ha- having my experience working with you at UT makes me smile a lot. Sometimes I'm always like, Marielle is a 10K runner. It makes me very happy. <laughs> I did try to make you a steeplechaser, but you were smart. You were really smart and said, to hell with that. <laughs> I thought I would have done it. Those were all the races are these days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but how do you how do you feel about that experience of being a 10k runner now and how does it work within the Bowerman team for you do you do stuff with Shelby and that in that sort of 155 group and then roll up with um some of the other girls that are doing marathon stuff or how does that all play out I see on your Instagram feed and on the Bowerman one that you guys seem to do a lot of work together and so there seems to be a lot of people doing very similar work and then shifting off probably this time of year where they start doing much more event specific work but how does that play out in the day-to-day with you guys in terms of from a training perspective yeah i would say just a unique aspect of the group and of the training is the core work is all done together you know 800 especially in the fall and early winter you know we're all doing same type of the same type of work um we're all like building the same base together so I do, I, you know, there hasn't really been, since I've been here, I think maybe I've done one session alone just to like 
maybe give a little bit of perspective. There's what 11 women. We all ranging from like an 800 meter Olympian through um, through the marathon. And I've always, you know, linked up with the entire group or, um, you know, at least three or four women. So I, I do think that a majority of the work that we do is together. Um, and then, like you were saying before, as people are approaching race season, as they're, if you're, your you know your specific sessions may change a little bit depending on what your what your overall goals are or what race day you're approaching but um yeah i would you know, i've done one thing alone this entire year and i would say 80 to 90% of the work that we do is as, as a group you've got a whole bunch of medalists in that group and olympians generally so you People who have won world championship medals, Olympic medals. It's pretty much the group to train in if you're a a badass female distance runner in the U.S., which seems to me might be a little bit intimidating walking in. So were you intimidated? First question. Second question, what have you learned from the others? I, I feel like I can't point to I'll do the second half of the question first I I can't point to like one specific lesson I've learned from you know every individual on the team but I have maybe cued into this personality you know this is why I feel like they're successful and I've you know you learn certain traits about people that that you feel like makes them into a great competitor or you know just a really a really good athlete. Um, so I feel like I'm pretty mindful of just learning and just observing people in that way and maybe extracting things that I don't really feel like I see within myself or things that I do see within myself or how, um, and how I can, you know, if those are, if there are traits that maybe I can build upon within myself or, if those are things that's like, Marielle, that's never going to happen for you. That's not who you are. But still, I'm, you know, I, I still admire that aspect of people, even if it's something that I would never do or I could never emulate. I, I think that the group has been, or every group that I've been in, even in back in, back with Ajay and Derek and Charlene and all, like, I still... I, I feel like I was very mindful of the things that I felt like made them successful. Um, so just, I think being alert and trying to recognize those traits in people that, that this group has been beneficial for that. Um, then the first part of the question was this an intimidating atmosphere. Of course, is it still? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> You're never gonna, um, yeah, I try and stay away from looking at people or myself as, you know, more or less capable of doing things. But of course, sometimes you're just jaw drop, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't think that that's unnatural. I feel like that that's going to happen in in competitive environments. Um, 
but yeah, I, I just, I try and stick to being supportive and, and being, and just kind of, you know, hoping that my time <laughs> comes eventually. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I, I, can, I can see how it would be in, intimidating and difficult, but I also know that, um, I, I know I've, in the experience that I had with you as an athlete, your level of toughness and you always bring to the quality workouts exactly the kind of mindset that's necessary. I'm sure that that really helped put you in good stead there to allow you to sort of take a deep breath and say, I'm just, all I can do is do the very best I can. And the fact that, as you stated, you really do have a process-driven process makes a huge difference. Um, when you think about this, you know, you as you alluded to and what Chris said a bit before, you you've had that sort of on again and you know, sort of seasons like this year where you had struggled a little bit on the indoor season and then had a great outdoor season. What kinds of things do you have you done in this last three to four months between say the US championships in indoor and then the US championships in outdoor where your results, the juxtaposition of those results was so dramatic? Is there anything different? Did you work on your mindset? Did you work on anything physically or mentally that was different? Or was this more along the lines of desperation mode, Marielle, who said, I've got to get this done and I've got to get it done now? I, I feel like it's maybe a little bit of everything. Um, of course, being in a group like this and in, in any setting where you're with high achieving people, there's, you know, performance standards and you want to be able to match them. Uh, I think that this, you know, this group has established themselves to, you know, be on the podium at U.S. championships and then transfer those performances into strong European summers of racing, um, whether that means that there's a global championship or not. And, you know, part of that is, is being a human, wanting to belong. <laughs> you know, you don't want to be the odd one out. Um, and I think part of it also is just natural progression of like putting in work and being consistent of just being there every day and, um, you know, just trying to get the most out of, I can't out of myself and on, on that day and focusing on that only. And then when the next day comes working on that. Uh, so I think it's, it's everything combined. It's the training. It's the mentality. It's also just, um, I feel like a product of being in this environment, you feel a little bit of desperation to achieve <laughs> because, you know, everyone around you is. And um, so, so, yeah, I feel like it's maybe a little bit of a combo. You got to kick things off at USA's this year for the team with the 10,000 on the first night take us behind the scenes on that you got second to molly huddle who i think won her 26th u.s title which is insane but take us <laughs> take us behind the scenes on your pre-race chat with jerry in terms of the plan and then how that played out during the race yeah um beforehand i think he just expressed to me that he felt like um there there wasn't a move that that I that I he didn't feel like I was capable of matching. So to just be aware that you know it is it will wind up. You can probably guess that Molly will 
will lead it um, just because you know she's she, I feel like she feels comfortable in that setting and she's also really good at it. Um, it's also probably empowering and feels good to kind of dictate a race and to be in control. And for someone like Molly, I think that you know the whole field nobody doesn't respect what she brings to the table and and you know what she so whatever um race that she dictates i feel like we're all pretty willing to follow <laughs> her judgment and her um and the tone that she sets so um jerry it was just you know no be aware that those things are going to happen and he just kind of told me that there were going to be, you know, it's going to wind down. There are moves to be made, but, you know, nothing is sustainable forever. So if you just stay with the pace and, and with those pickups that, you know, maybe there'll be a lapse somewhere and, you know, hopefully you can take advantage of that. And, you know, it did pretty much play out to what you could expect. Um, that that last 400 there was definitely not something at this time that I really was able to match. <laughs> you stayed in it for, you stayed in it until then though. Right. Yeah. I got to be happy with some, with progress. Um, I would have, it's, it's definitely tough to be in any race, especially one as long as the 10 K to not really kind of miss the race, which, which is that last, well, I would say for this race, maybe the last like, mile to 1,200 meters, but um, I haven't really been in a like in a race, which I would call the last like 400, 300, 200 meters where all of the action happens. I haven't really been there in a while, so um, still looking to be able to bridge that gap and and to just like have a few more exciting competitive experiences <laughs> so when you're in a race like that and and molly went pretty early and started pressing the pace and everybody lined up behind her it was pretty clear that you were the second strongest in the field and that but that rubber band to her was kind of stretching and and flexing at various times during the race what mode do you go into are you just trying to keep your eyes on the back of her head and turn your brain off or are you thinking about something else? Yeah, for me, I I feel like I've struggled with this. Even in the 5K, is just getting a little bit more excited too early. Um, so I feel like I, you know, I felt pretty good throughout the race. So it's just I'm almost kind of like, oh, just bring the last lap here, so I can so I can just go. I'm ready to kick now, and you know, there's could still be. Like, 5k left <laughs> which um if most people or coaches will tell you you know the first the first 5k at least you know you should be kind of just dead out there just nothing floating in between the ears you're just kind of following and, and not doing too much processing about how you feel or, or what's happening in the race really just kind of trying to conserve as much energy as possible and not make too many moves um, and I, I feel like sometimes I just kind of get a little too excited too soon and am ready for for the race to kind of pick up before um, before it's time. So just doing a better 
in the future probably just need to do more of what you said of just kind of clearing the mind and not having too much going on. You always seem to find yourself positioned um, pretty, pretty, you're, you're almost always, Mario, like right on the pace over the last few years. That seems to be since your NCAA win, you, 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 do, your, you do best when you're there in the, in, on the lead or in the top two or three tracking who you think is going to be able to, who's going to be making the moves and when they're going to make them. And um, do you feel like that you're, when I think back to your experience at the World Champs and your experience at, at, at the Olympic Games, do you feel like the transition to Jerry was what was necessary in order for you to be able to do that at the world level? Um, do you feel like you were in a position where you, you feel like you've got the ability to take, to, to do that kind of work and to position yourself there? Or do you feel like you still have a little bit of time, to, little ways to go before you're confident enough to make those moves? I mean, you're in Europe now, you've got some big races coming up, I'm sure. How are you thinking about that, where you position yourself, how you position yourself in the big races you'll be running coming up? Um, let's, I feel like to be honest, I, I don't like at this point, like see myself stepping on to like a world 5k or 10k and really being, being all that competitive. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I, I feel like I haven't been ignorant to the times and the racing styles that have been happening over the last few years or maybe forever, but <laughs> the last few years that I've been watching it's just like I definitely see what these um like internationally what women are capable of and I I couldn't really say that I um and in a practical manner like seeing that on a day-to-day in practice but you know I'm definitely optimistic and hopeful (laughs) that I'm like working towards transforming myself into being that kind of athlete um I think it just takes more time, even like being honest with what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. And I think as a competitor, like sitting down and really saying, I suck at this, um, is hard. <laughs> you know, you never want to be vulnerable or say that you're not capable of doing something. Um, you don't want to just like give that away. So I think that that's, especially when you're in season and like in competitive battles at this point in time, it's hard to take a step back and reflect and say, Hey, I'm not that good at this. I need to, this is something I really need to work on. I think when you're in the season and in the moment, it's for me, a lot of denial at some (laughs) of just like, okay, I can, I can do this. Or you kind of, you know, you look at a race and you try and flip it upside down for somehow to see yourself in it. <laughs> um, I, I feel like I am doing a lot of that currently, but you know, when the season's over, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to sit down and, and really take a look at how I get there. Um, but I think for me at this point, it's just, um, I feel like Jerry is pretty protective in some ways about putting you in races and in scenarios that he thinks that you're ready for. There aren't very many times where you'll, I think, see any of his athletes like doing something that they're over their head, that's in over their head. So just kind of having trust and confidence that, hey, for this point in time, if I'm put in a race, then, you know, I have 
you know, the resources within myself to deal with whatever what happens on the day and, and just put myself in it. But I think, um, you know, that's what I approach the day with. But, um, you know, there always is lingering thoughts of things that I need to be better at and um, areas I need to still improve upon for me to really be able to see myself um, competing, uh, you know, strongly on a global stage. Do you have a list like in your head of things, boxes you need to check to feel like you're, you're going to be ready for that step? Or is it just about putting your head down and taking each day as it comes and trusting in the process with Jerry? I do. I, I, I feel like I have maybe a combo of that. Like I, for right now, it's really all been about, okay, just whatever we do, we're supposed to do today. You know, that's what I'm doing. I'm not really thinking past, is this helping or hurting? Is this, I'm just kind of, you know, whatever is the assignment for the day. I'm just, I'm, I'm not trying to do any more or less. I'm just trying to meet quota. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I, I think, at the end of the season and even now, you know, being at an altitude camp or training away from home, you have way too much time to think. So I <laughs> definitely, you know, feel aware of things that I, that I feel like I need to change or improve, but I just try and not get too caught up with them at this point, because I feel like for this year, for me, it's been about adjusting to the training you know, getting familiar with expectations and and just kind of figuring out the rhythm to the year. So next year, you know, when we're heading in towards trying to make a world team and then the following year, an Olympic team, I have just, you know, I'll have a little bit more awareness about what the um, pattern of the year will be and and, you know, where, which I expect from myself or what will be expected from me certain times a year been trying to like focus on that for this time so what do you, yeah what do you have coming up what do, what races do you have on the schedule what are you looking um at? i'm running a 5k in houston which i think um like shelby will be racing i think um Shalane may be um coming out to have pace so something a fast 5k hopefully getting a pr um and that's really it for me for Europe. There weren't very many um, 5K, 3K opportunities this summer. Um, for So I'm just, I'm doing that 5K in about two weeks. And then um, probably to some road races in August. And then see from there i was gonna do nakak but i don't think that there's a 10k there <laughs> so yeah <laughs> just trying to well, i think you're gonna do i'm excited to see you run on the roads do you have road do you know which road races you might be picking have you have you thought about that far forward or is it sort of wait um and see? probably beach to beacon and thalmus those are two 10ks on the road um like early august yeah. and then later in the month would be Falmouth. So yeah, just trying to get in competitive opportunities. And again, I think the roads are 
longer distances, whatever it may be. Sometimes it's hard to be honest with where your strengths are and, and where you may need to go to grow. Um, but I think I'm just trying to be open with, again, back to opportunities and um, yeah, competitive experiences. I think they're all good, whether on the roads or on the track. <laughs> And when you look to 2019 and 2020 world champs in the Olympics, are you focused on the 10 at this point or will you continue to bounce back and forth between the five and the 10? Um, so personally, I would love if being a better 10 K runner meant that it made me a better five K runner. Um, I would, you know, I, I would love to be able to continue to contest that event. Um, But at the same time, I I wouldn't, you know, not if if my best chance were only to make the 10K team, then, you know, that's what I would focus on. Yeah, but I'm just hoping that the stars align and somehow being a good 10K runner translates. (laughs) Got to be versatile, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you... Yeah, all of the best runners in the world can run five or if they're doing a distance event, they can pretty much do everything. So <laughs> especially the men, I feel like you see a lot of 10K runners still running 15s and um, still doing 5Ks, still on the roads. Like I think that being versatile goes a long way. It's just kind of figuring out what combination um, works best for you. So still working on that. So last question from me, and we have a bunch of listeners who are road warriors training for half marathons and marathons, which is you know a little bit longer than what you're gearing up for. But I think a lot of the training principles are the same. So if you had some training tips for the everyday runner who's getting it done with a full-time job and kids and all those good things, what would you say? I would say I would get a coach no matter what, even if the coach is just a friend or someone that you are open with about your training and on someone that you can be honest with. Um, I think that 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 it goes a long way to have an open source of communication with someone. Um, so I know that there are a lot of people that don't do like aren't maybe doing competitive or elite racing, but, and they feel like, you know, who needs a coach? I'm just going out there to run. Um, but I feel like having guidance is, you know, you put, it puts just more accountability on you and, um, you know, it creates a team around what you're doing, which is always fun. And yeah, I, I just, I think having a coach or having people in your corner specific to what you're doing goes a long way. Well, hear here on that. Yes, for sure. <laughs> yes, Steve Plug, get a coach, which is Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Marielle. <laughs> no, no, I, I do have one, one, just one more question. And I know you are a voracious reader and that you are always got your head thinking in something. Um, what are your, what are you, um, what's life look, what does life look like for you beyond the track? Like, what are your interests now? And uh, where 
Are you working towards um, a post-running career at this point? Or are you staying more focused just on the things you need to do from a running perspective? So I think sort of what are you, what are you working on that's out off the track at this point? So a lot of, we have a lot of free time up at altitude. Um, so most of it's spent reading, listening to, um, listening to a ton of podcasts. I am not working on, on any specific, um, like any specific projects or anything, anything too interesting, but I do feel like I'm just trying to, consume information and things that can give me a better understanding of of myself, which hopefully in turn makes me a better athlete, um, gives me, you know, more purpose during training and in a non race day. Um, I like cooking. That's that's been also yeah a, a thing where I feel like we spend a lot of our time running, experimenting in the kitchen. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think the altitude has just provided a chance to kind of, um, really hone in on training, but also just be where you are in the time. So just enjoying the surroundings and traveling a lot, learning about cultures of where we are, um, watching the world cup in Switzerland has been pretty exciting. Um, so yeah, just ingraining yourself with where you are, the people around you. Um, it's been fun to get to know, you know, there's 11, 12 women that are training with the group now, each of them coming from a different place. So getting to know people better, but yeah, I, w- I would say most of my free time off the track is spent either cooking or reading or listening to podcasts. <laughs> Any book recommendations from your recent list? Um, I'm reading Underground Railroad and The Power, which was Obama's fav- one of Obama's favorite books in like 2016. So that feels like <laughs> an interesting. It's kind of like a Handmaiden's Tale type, um, a little bit of sci-fi. And uh, so... Yeah, I don't have any specific recommendations, but I am reading the Underground Railroad right now, which is which I like. Good. Hopefully, those are good ones. Some deep reading there. Yeah, I got to mix it in with, uh, but Underground Railroad's good because it's heavy topic, but it's more of like an adventure, um, Huck Finn type story. So it's it's more like there are heavier undertones, but the book actually reads like an adventure story so that's kind of (laughs) cool cool well mario we know it's getting later there in europe we really appreciate you joining us we hope that we've made some new fans for you today so thank you very much for joining us yeah no thanks for having me hopefully it will be good for your listeners not and was not too painful for you guys but for whatever whatever (laughs) (laughs) you did awesome and good luck good luck in europe yeah thank you i appreciate it well there you go thanks to mario for joining us i hopefully hopefully you enjoyed that interview a couple of really good sound bites from mario i think 
that everyone can take and use in their training. So best of luck to Mariala as she continues her European season. Now we sign off, of course. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.